Good evening, I'm Terrence McKnight. And you know, I've been here 12 years at New York Public Radio. 12 years already. And day after day, year after year, I've sat here talking about all kinds of music from Austria, Scotland, Vienna, Russia, France, Italy, talking about Fair Melusina, Girls with Flaxen Hair, The Youth of Hercules, festivals, so many festivals, Mozart, Bach, and for everybody who didn't look like me. But as Langston Hughes said, someday somebody will stand up and talk about me and write about me, black and beautiful, and sing about me. I reckon it'll be me, myself. That's what Langston said. So here I am, Terrence McKnight, on this Juneteenth holiday, celebrating Juneteenth, but I'm not alone. I'm not alone, Langston. Our entire team here at WQXR is on a string today. That's a basketball term. We're all together. We're pulling together to make a statement that music can be on the front lines for equality and justice, just like it was for Beethoven and Rimsky-Korsakoff, Chopin, Harry Belafonte. Music can help us see one another more clearly. All the music we played today has featured either performers or composers of African descent. And that Juneteenth celebration was 155 years ago, the very first one when those enslaved men and women and children walked away from those plantations. A lot has happened since then, a whole lot has changed, but not without struggle. So our conversation today is about the concert halls in our country. How different do they look, sound, and feel? What is it like for a black person to walk into a concert hall and sit there for a couple of hours? Now some people actually care about this, not everyone, but many are having these conversations on social media. Just take a look at Facebook. You'll see what I'm talking about. But we're going to have it on the radio tonight. And I've invited a few guests, but I want to hear from you, too. I'm going to take your emails and your phone calls. I'm going to give you the number shortly. But sit back, relax yourself. My first guest has written about the structures that were put in place after emancipation. Some of those structures seem to be crumbling these days. At last. Khalil Mohammed is my first guest. He knows all about those structures. He's going to join us shortly. This is The Black Experience in the Concert Hall, a Juneteenth special from WQXR. Whisper, listen, whisper, say we're free. Rumors flying, must be lying, can it really be? Can conceive it, can believe it, but that's what they say. Slave no longer, slave no longer, this is Freedom Day. Freedom Day. This is a special broadcast on a special holiday. June 19th is Juneteenth, celebrating the exodus of millions of African Americans from slavery. Let's talk about this with the former director of the Schomburg Center for Black Culture and Research and the current professor of history, race, and public policy at Harvard. He's also the author of The Condemnation of Blackness. Welcome, Khalil Muhammad. Thank you so much, for Ter Terrence, for having me. 
Yeah, and happy Juneteenth, Doctor. Happy Juneteenth to you. Tell us, Khalil, let's jump right into it, man. How did the American government deal with those millions of formerly enslaved women, men, and children suddenly being free? What yeah, systems well, were put in place? Yeah, so the, the, uh, the moment that the black folk in Galveston, Texas, heard from General Gordon Granger on June 19, 1865, that they were free, set forth a moment of jubilation for those black folks, but also presaged the fact that that freedom was a very limited one, that was a freedom that was about working under new conditions, not under having the full fruits of one's humanity to come and go as one pleased. In fact, Granger himself said, as he told those people who had been freed by the Emancipation Proclamation two and a half years before June 19, 1865, he said that the freedmen are advised to remain at their present homes. Imagine that, their homes and work for wages. They are informed that they will not be allowed to collect at military posts and they will not be supported in idleness either there or elsewhere. So he basically said, look, y'all's free, but y'all should stay where you are. You should keep working for the same masters that have owned you for all these years. And if you choose not to work, you shouldn't do that because that's a bad thing to do. And so that set in motion really the way that we as historians understand what came next, 13th Amendment, abolishes slavery except as punishment for a crime, essentially sets up a situation where the criminal justice system becomes the primary instrument of racial domination in America that supplants slavery but continues to limit black people's freedom. So as these people began to migrate into northern cities, millions, you know, during the Great Migration, how did the government deal with that? How did they deal with this, this migration north? You, you talked about the criminal justice system, but what, what was put in place to perhaps nurture these people? Um, I know there were a lot of European immigrants coming to the country as well. Can you talk about the juxtaposition of how uh, black folks were treated, um, um, systems treated those two groups differently? Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's, it's one of the lesser known chapters in American history. So what we know is that in the South, we move from the end of slavery to black codes and convict leasing to lynch mobs to the system of Jim Crow segregation that defines the reality of African-Americans until the civil rights movement. OK, everybody knows that or some version of it. What we don't know as much about is, so what about the black folk who leave the South pretty early on? They respond to the call for labor because of World War I. They come to places like New York, Chicago. It's those black people that will eventually give rise to the classical musicians of the Harlem Renaissance period. And yet they faced some of the same kind of virulent racism in the North against their desire to live in a home of their own choosing, in a neighborhood that would provide them opportunities and a piece of the American dream, 
a chance to to work in a factory or on our shop floor on equal footing as their immigrant neighbors. After all, they were Americans. The immigrants were not. They were newcomers to this country. And what they faced time and time again was various forms of segregation and discrimination that the police in particular aided and abetted. When they complained about racial violence, they were met not with protection and service, but with another form of state violence. And it's a pretty dramatic story that culminates in a series of race riots in the 1920s. Chicago is the most studied, produces a Blue Ribbon Commission. There's just unmistakable, clear evidence of police violence and state violence and, and sets a pattern that continues into the late 20th century that we're still dealing with today. Khalil, what's at the root of this? Was there, was, was there a, a notion of inferiority, black folks being in just naturally inferior? Yeah, so, so one of the, the, the innovations of the Enlightenment period uh, was to reject religion as the basic way of understanding the natural world and to insert a scientific understanding of how the world was organized. I mean, after all, it was Enlightenment musicians, uh, people who could understand the relationship between musical notation and math that gave us the genius of the classical form. And yet and still, those same geniuses came up with the scientific defense of a new form of oppression, not because the way that one worshiped God was different than someone else, but in this case, because of the color of their skin, because of a, a notion of a primordial difference born of, of Africa as a place that was primitive and savage. And so this idea of white supremacy born in the context of transatlantic slavery lived on after the Civil War, lived on beyond Juneteenth, lived on basically as a defense of inequality. And because we've been teaching and telling Americans more or less the same story, which is that white is right and black is to be questioned, uh, we are seeing the harvest of that white supremacist ideology play out in our present. Now we're talking about um, the black experience in the concert hall. You're a professor of all those things at Harvard. How often do you go to the concert hall, Khalil? I don't go that often. <laughs> I'm not going to lie to you. I know your children are musical, man. They took music <laughs> lessons and I'm, I'm wondering why, how come you, or what have you, have you experienced something at a concert hall that makes you not eager to go back and hear you know, philharmonics and, and symphony orchestras and operas? Uh, you know, I'll be honest. Like, so my kids are special in the sense that they they grew up in Indiana and in, in Bloomington, Indiana, which has an amazing uh, classical music program as well as a, a jazz program. Uh, and so they took a lot of pre-collegiate collegiate, um, uh, classes in, in ballet. My son is trained as a classical guitarist. My children all play the piano. They learned it classical form, but they all migrated to jazz and popular music because it spoke to them. And so to the to a degree, you know, I didn't come of age in the way that they did. I came of age not feeling like that music spoke to me, that that, that was the music that was universal in the way the classical music often thinks of itself. Uh, and so my children are further along than I am, to be sure, which I think is the promise and the possibility of the future. But no, 
Um, you know, the, the concert hall did not necessarily speak to me as an individual, but had I known of Marian Anderson or Roland Hayes uh, coming of age and not just as a historian who was studying the history, maybe things would have been different. Man, thank you so much for teeing this up for us. Very important conversation. And um, I hope to see you soon, Khalil. Happy Father's Day. I appreciate it. And happy Father's Day to you. Thank you, brother. <laughs> Dr. Khalil yes. Mohammed is the professor of history, race and public policy at Harvard University. This is the Black Experience in the Concert Hall, a Juneteenth call-in special from WQXR. Leontine Price we're listening to. But our next guest was one of the leading sopranos at the Metropolitan Opera in the next decade, the 60s and 70s. She was of that first generation of black stars at the Met. Her star still shines brightly. Stay with us. Martina Arroyo joins us next. Puccini, Lantine Price, heard here on the special from WQXR. I'm Terrence McKnight. I'm going to be taking your calls later, right now, on the phone with us. Guess who? Martina Arroyo is here. Hey, Martina. Hello. Hi, how are you? I'm doing well. Did you hear that singing? Of course, it wasn't me. It was Lantine. She was gorgeous. Yeah, and I played her because (laughs) when when I called, and I'll just tell you all, when I called Martina to be a part of this, she said, oh, you should have Leontine. Oh, she's just, what does she mean to well, you? Well, you know, her, I think Leontine is just tops. I, I think she's one of the yeah. best singers in the very whole world. And you couldn't hear anything by her that wouldn't be very beautiful. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like her coming ahead of you made made it an uh, uh, easier road for you in the profession? No, not particularly. She didn't really come ahead of me. We came sort of at the same mm-hmm. time. Um, but I, I don't think I don't, I don't think there is one or the other... It, uh, she's she's an icon, and there's nothing you can do about that. There's nothing you can say about it except that the lady is an icon, and, and she's one of the very few that had remained so through the, throughout her career. Yeah, so let's talk about, about your time at the Met and your time in classical music, but let's go back to the beginning. Okay. I wanna, I'm wondering who like, recognized that you had a gift in that throat of yours? Oh, I sang in the church choir for years as a little child, and um, and and then also as a soloist in, again in the church, and uh, that's where it all started. Mm-hmm. And what Teen were you singing? Christian music, yeah. Yeah. Uh, songs of oh gosh, all kinds of songs, songs that I still remember and sing to myself. Like what? There's a meeting here tonight. All together, there's mm-hmm. a meeting here tonight. That and um, God spoke to me one day. Beautiful songs, beautiful songs. 
What, what did your father think of all this singing? He didn't think anything about it at all. He just went in the other room where he could watch <laughs> a baseball game. As a matter of fact, I think he would shut me up if I, if I was too loud over a baseball announcer. <laughs> yeah. Now, growing up, but my Mark, mother was a uh-huh. true. Yeah. I'm sorry. No, she was. She was the one who followed me and encouraged me. But he, he sort of like, what is all that yelling about? Until a friend of his visited, then he would say, "Sing for us." You know, he was very proud then. But um, I had a hard life in, <laughs> with him in an opera. Did he? Did he um, see your success? Did he see see you perform at the Met? No, he didn't, because he died just before, mm-hmm. unfortunately. But my yeah. mother did, and she came all the way, and she was wonderful. As yeah. a matter of fact, my mother had more success at the Met than I did. When she walked in, everybody got ran to get her coat and seat her properly and comfortably, and then they would look around and say, oh, there's her daughter over there. Talk about those early voice lessons when you started singing Bel Canto Stau. Yeah. yeah. Where did you where did you study and what was that like going back to the neighborhood? Well, I studied with Marinka Gorevich. You know, I actually had sung with the kids in, in at the school uh, at at Salem Church, but that was fun. That was just getting together and singing. When I started studying with Mrs. Gorevich, it was serious and she didn't take any stuff. I had to know my music and prepare properly. And um and she remained my teacher throughout my lifetime. Um she she was a, a really a tough lady and and she made it she put you know either you're going to do this properly or you're not going to do it all you can't go to the baseball games and scream all day and come here and and sing opera <laughs> or sing any kind of classical music but she was uh, I soon found out that the place I wanted to be was in the opera house mm-hmm. or on the on the on the classical stage it didn't have to be I loved singing for the New York uh, Philharmonic for example. Martina, did you notice perhaps that your presence at the Metropolitan Opera or anywhere where you sang with an orchestra, did you notice that if or not there was an audience that followed you there, maybe a Puerto Rican audience or a, a, or a black audience coming to support you? Was that the case? Oh, I think there were people who were very proud and who did follow, but not as many as you would think because... You have to first introduce some people to a, a new idea, but uh, there were those who came. I remember the very first night of the Don, uh, Don Carlo, my mother brought my aunt along, and my aunt had one of her wide-brimmed hats on, and she was asked by a lady something like three rows behind her, would she please remove her hoot you know, because it was too much. But... Um, she No, I didn't, I didn't have a big following. I had for church music, yes, but not for classical music. And, and but I still studied the classical music and very happily. Uh, they say they say separated most of my life, most of my early life. Mm-hmm. Now you work a lot with young singers. Your prelude to performance. Oh yes. Oh yeah. Oh yes. All these young you, That's you train. That's the part these, I like most. Yeah, these young singers get a, uh, an opportunity to, to perform these roles with with orchestra. Yes, I don't train them. I don't train them vocally. They come yeah. in with teachers and. But they learn acting, which is very often a part that's not not followed as carefully. Um, they prepare the parts. 
really very well. They're, they're wonderful. The moment you introduce them to the idea of a, a new idea, they grab it and run with it, you know, and, and it's, 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 it's great to see that happen and to see them uh, take hold of the acting part of it, which is where I was mainly uh, invested. Well, I say train because I've seen you around them, and I think just from being around you, they learn how to be. They learn how to, to be professionals. Oh, they get to nice watch you. I, I bet he, oh. each, all of them would agree with me. I'm sure all of them wouldn't. would agree with <laughs> <laughs> I bet they wouldn't. <laughs> but you're, I'd love you're... to be around them. And as a matter of fact, I see many of them out of classes, and they come over and, and when they have problems, and they discuss them. So I, I know them personally. What do you make of this moment we're in right now? It seems like people, it's an opportunity where people are listening to each other differently, more passion, compassionately. Are you picking up on that? Um, when you say listening to each other more compassionately, I, I didn't think they listened more com, less compassionately before. It's just that now we're making it, we, we, we make it a part of our, our regular life and discussion, whereas before we might not have discussed it so much. Because I was always that was always a part of my discussion with Mrs. Gurevich from fourteen years old, you know. Um, whereas I didn't discuss it with her, uh, I, I didn't make an issue of it. It just it was a, a part of the the growing process. You you had to grow emotionally. You had to grow um, physically. You had to grow for, uh, as a, as a singer. All of those things came together. But um, they do nowadays, too. You'd be surprised. And even in the classes, they'll come up and they'll bring you other problems, home problems, that they can't satisfy because they don't. They, you have to discuss that problem with them. And then, then they approach uh, the, the musical problem as well. Mm-hmm. And some yeah. of the teachers don't have quite as much time to give to each student. So it's in a class where, um, where they're talking about acting. Uh, that that it becomes a part of the way of you th- of thinking. You know, you have you have to bring it out of you. You just don't stand there and 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 uh, act the part. You have to live that part. Mm-hmm. Now, some Does singers, that make any sense to you? Yeah, yeah, absolutely, everything you say always makes sense to me. Not always. No. Most cases. Okay. There are a lot of people talking about what's happening at the Met or what's not happening at the Met, what's happening at the Philharmonic, mm-hmm. what's not happening at the Philharmonic. When you mm-hmm. when you close your eyes or, or when you think about what you would like to see um, in terms of racial equity or different programming, what do you what do you, what do you think about? Well, I wish there would be more racial equity in something other than a production of Porgy and Bess. Those were some of the most glorious singers I had heard in a long time. I went to the opening night, and they were just fantastic. Uh, and, and I'd like to see to hear the, the the performance was a success. But those same singers could do, do well in in other operas and and be able to show themselves not as a black singer, but as a singer who can take take the job on. And I think that it will happen. I think that. Um, um, People are recognizing that these young people come in sincerely. They, I know that after the night of the reception, they went around and, and many tables were saying, we hope to see you in other things. They, they, the people said they wanted to see them in other parts. Yeah. That'll be a mighty day. And I'm looking forward just, to that. Yeah, I am too. Yeah. <laughs> I'm kind of, but but it has. It, they've been promised 
other parts, and some have done other parts, but it hasn't really happened. It hasn't happened wholesale yet. Okay, we Martina. Have, we have the talent. Yep, yep, definitely. I I was at a couple of those shows. It was incredible, and I think everybody there agreed with the the caliber of talent. There was just incredible. oh, it was so high, yeah. so high, and 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 without without a by your leave to anyone in the audience, they just stood and sang and acted that they were and it wasn't because it was Porgy and Bess and they all knew it no baloney it was because uh they they did give that same amount of giving in any performance that they are part of yep and i look forward to the day when we look at a, a, a schedule and say not there's a black girl singing it but there's so and so singing it and and she's wonderful or he's wonderful i think we've we've come part of the way and that's good that's very good. Thank you for being here, Martina. I look forward to seeing you again soon. Oh, it's my soon. pleasure. Okay. Thank you. I do, too. Take care. Okay. Have a beautiful weekend. Martina Arroyo on the phone with us here on WQXR. Her foundation organization supports Prelude to Performance, an intensive training ground for young opera singers. I'm Terrence McKnight, and we're talking about the black experience in the concert hall. You just heard from Martina Arroyo on the special Juneteenth program from WQXR. No matter where you're listening from, if you go to orchestral concerts, chamber concerts, new music concerts, opera, very few people of color. Jesse Rosen is president of the League of American Orchestras. He's going to join us on the program next I'm going to open the phone lines a little bit later. Now, if you're a black conductor or musician and you show up in concert halls to do your work, you have a unique story. Oh, enlighten us. We want to hear from you. Our number is 646-435-7280. Write this down. 646-435-7280. Here's a call out for all you black conductors and musicians working in the concert hall. Jesse Rosen joins us next. This is the black experience in the concert hall. A Juneteenth special from WQXR. 30 years after emancipation, composer Antonin Dvorak was right here in New York City. He was running the music school, the National Conservatory of Music. Now, one of his students was Harry T. Burley, a young man who learned to sing by listening to his grandfather, who had been enslaved. Burley sang those songs, those plantation songs, to Antonin Dvorak. And Dvorak identified with those songs. He said his people had been oppressed as well. But he heard these songs and the ethos of these songs as authentically American. He was right. It's the stuff that jazz and blues and gospel and rock and roll are made of. Yet when you go into the concert hall, the racial makeup in the concert hall in 2020 is not that different than it was in 1895. 
Not that I was there, but I read stuff. Jesse Rosen has theories and statistics. He's the president of the League of American Orchestras. He's on the phone right now. Hello, Jesse. Hey, Terrence. Good to hear your voice. Yes, it's been some time. Yeah. Hey, what, what was that music you were playing before? Ah, I, I knew it would pique your curiosity. That's a yeah, composer. <laughs> that's a, that's a, it's a Brooklyn-based composer and uh, violinist, Daniel Bernard Romain. He tells a great story oh about... Oh, my God. Yeah, you know DBR. Yeah, that's his of arrangement. Of, it's on my board. <laughs> <laughs> How about that? Jesse Rosen, thanks, wow. for, um, thanks for, for taking part of this important conversation. I know your, your yeah. organization has had many conversations about diversity. So for my listener, just talk about some of those, some of the research that you've done. Talk about the demographics and, and American yeah. orchestras and, and in the concert halls. What are you saying? Sure. Uh, we did two major studies a few years ago, one a, a quantitative study on um, uh, race, ethnicity, and gender in U.S. orchestras. And then a second one was a more qualitative study, which looked at the experience of African-American musicians who were uh, performing as fellows under fellowship programs in, in U.S. orchestras. And the, the quantitative study um, was um, not surprising, uh, tragic in uh, revealing that over a 25-year period, the per percentage of African-American musicians on stage in U.S. orchestras was 1.8%. And over that time span, which was uh, 1990 to 2014, there was hardly any movement at all. And um, uh, having that data uh, available and widely disseminated through our field was incredibly useful. And, uh, you know, it was the first time there was a major credible uh, study done and kind of turned the lights on, which was a good good kick in the pants to our membership. The second study um, that looked at the, the qualitative uh, experience of, of black musicians um, had some really critical insights. It's informed a lot of our work and our, our field's work. And what the... But the qualitative study showed was that the musicians who were in these fellowships went back into the 1970s. Um, while musically they grew, their experience inside the orchestras was, for the most part, um, pretty unsatisfying. And they found themselves inside of organizational cultures that were, um, you know, ranged from indifferent to neglectful to outright hostile, occasionally supportive, but rarely was there an understanding across the whole organization that these were artists who merited support and engagement and, and nurturing. And uh, that was a really important finding because many orchestras are about, about getting ready to start up new fellowship programs again. And uh, this insight has actually shaped a lot of our, our work at the League and a lot of the directions orchestras are going in now. Mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit more about the league. Uh, when was it founded and what were you set up to do? Uh, we were founded in 1942 by a bunch of small budget orchestras up in Wisconsin. And uh, it was, you know, peer, peer organization for those, uh, those folks. And the, the story is quite interesting. In 1946, when the war ended, uh, the big orchestras, 
went down to Washington to try to get an excise tax repealed. And what they heard from the policymakers at the Capitol was, you have no constituency. Come back when you actually represent somebody besides, you know, three or four of these big East Coast metropolitan areas. So the big orchestras sought out the league, which, uh, you know, just started up. And they saw they had an interest in getting together with other orchestras around the country. And that's really how the modern league uh, got, got going. And this idea of a big tent the big and the small and the in-between and the musicians and the managers and the volunteers and trustees all under one umbrella was really viewed and continues to be viewed as really our most forceful way to uh, advocate and support the interests of uh, the artists and the art form. Mm -hmm. So 1946, I mean, we were uh, a very different country. So now, now 2020, and especially now over the last couple of weeks, you're seeing organizations coming out with, you know, maybe like a shift in mission statement and they're putting out all of these statements about where they stand around equity and, and diversity and inclusion. What is the league talking about? What are you guys talking about over there uh, moving forward? Uh, we're talking about a few things. I, I think the big uh, message for us to ourselves and our own staff and our own board is the importance of doing our own work and uh, addressing our own practices and culture and our own, you know, inherent racism and and perpetuation of a system that um, just relentlessly perpetuates a predominantly white uh, organization. So that's kind of number one. And number two is almost the same message to our members. You know, those fellowship programs that I mentioned before had no impact on changing um, the makeup of American orchestras, and in part because they couldn't. Um, there, there was nothing behind it. And so we're encouraging our members and helping our members actually through a grants making program to address their own internal cultures and address issues of implicit bias, of structural racism, of racial equity practices, the kinds of ways of working that are known to have a greater chance of um, lasting change rather than a, you know, starting a program here or a program there. We also partnered up with um, two organizations, the Sphinx Organization and the New World Symphony, and we launched this effort two years ago where we created a fund supported by 80 orchestras around the country, uh, putting funds into it along with the Mellon Foundation, which provides stipends for African-American and Latinx musicians to gain uh, mentorships, training, uh, audition preparation, and travel stipends to uh, remove some of the barriers to auditioning. And so far, there's been about 140 musicians we've supported through this. About 20 of them have won uh, auditions in the last 18 months or so. And as I said, 80 orchestras are banded together in supporting this. And uh, we also have a program where we award grants to our members so they can retain specialists in helping them work on their organizational culture and address issues of equity, diversity, and inclusion. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm just curious, Jesse, I'm, I don't know if you've thought about this, but maybe we can think about it together right now. If we were to if you were to construct an orchestra right now, 70, 80 players, um, what would you do differently? What would you do? What would that orchestra look and sound like? What would they play? Where would they play? What what's what's kind of your dream scenario um, as we try to perhaps rebuild and, and save this yeah. institution of great music making? Well, what, what, what a great question. Um, well, you know, I, I kind of want to start out with some 
uh, you know, guiding principles, things that really mattered. And, uh, you know, I, I would certainly start with, with who's in it and wanting to have a variety of people of all types of African-American and Latinx and white and Asian and the whole, the whole schmear. And I would also want the work to be grounded in an artistic, an expansive artistic vision that's not bound by the structures that we've built for concert production today. Um, you know, I think it, it, the, the work really needs to begin with a kind of fresh reimagining of what's possible in terms of repertoire, in terms of the engagement uh, with the audience and the public, the roles of musicians. And, um, you know, we've gotten very mechanized in the way we make, make concerts and make orchestras. It's become quite uh, uh, routinized um, in terms of patterns, of rehearsals and performances, and, and also constraining often the roles of musicians to uh, rehearsals and concerts. And, you know, so I like to think of the orchestra as the musicians are not only the musicians, but they're people also guiding the artistic uh, evolution of the ensemble and looking after both the individual players' growth and development as well as the care and feeding of the ensemble itself, and that there would be ownership in that work among the musicians and conductors too, um, and, and staff. Um, you know, right now we're very compartmentalized. Everyone has their own special role. But, you know, we, we know from quite a few models that there are ways to um, break down some of those barriers and really, um, uh, I, I think, strengthen and, and, and revitalize the artistic work of an orchestra. So those some some early thoughts. You came up with that on the spur of the moment. That's pretty impressive. Jesse Rosen, thanks for being here, man. I look forward to seeing you again and shaking your hand without latex gloves. That'll be cool. <laughs> Thank you, Terrence. Thanks Looking a lot. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. Okay. You're, listening to, you're welcome, man. You're listening to WQXR. This is a special Juneteenth special, The Black Experience in the Concert Hall. I'm going to take some calls. Here, our phone number is 646-435-7280. If you are a black musician of African descent and you work in the concert hall, conduct, maybe you're in the uh, chorus, maybe you are... Um, one of the orchestral players or a singer, we'd love to talk to you and, and get your impressions. Tell us about your experiences. I've got a call right now, a conductor. Could this be, I see the name Leslie. Could this be Leslie Dunner? Yes, it is. Hello, sir. Hello, Terrence. How are you? Nice to hear your voice. Likewise. So tell us, so tell us, a little bit about your experience in the in the in the concert hall, being a black musician. What in general, what has in the it concert been like hall, my you? experience has been very good. Yes, the concert hall has treated me well. Some of the difficulties we have is not so much in the concert hall; it's getting to the concert hall and what happens after the concert hall. Those are usually the difficulty areas. Do you remember your first time? Going to see uh, yeah, an orchestra. Yeah, the first time, the first time I conducted was with the Dance Theater of Harlem on tour. We were in Ohio. Uh, we did a performance that went very, very well, and the um, presenter from the organization that that brought us to that city ran backstage to my dressing room, shook my hand very, very um, energetically, and said, "Wow, that was a terrific performance." It never occurred to me that there could be a black conductor. 
I know he meant it as a compliment, but that is not how it came across. Where'd you grow up, Leslie Dunner? I grew up in East Harlem and South Bronx in what has been called the war zone. So yes. I'm very much a product of the, um, the urban environment. Yep. So what inspired you as a young person to go into music? Who did you see? Who, how, how did your inspiration to follow this career and become a conductor, how'd that come about? Oh, that's a good question. It was very circuitous and serendipitous. When I was very young, um, I, I had a lot of difficulty in school because I, I was um, what they called a, a problem child because I was fidgety, I guess they, they called me, and very restless, always getting into trouble. They did testing, and I was one of the children that was tested uh, in the late 1960, late 1963. And I remember my mother being called in and being told that I was going to be transferred to another school. And no one talks about what happened in America with busing of children in the North. Everybody has focused on the South. I was part of the first wave of children who were, who were bused in the North. And so I was sent to a school in a very Jewish area. And my experiences at school is what led to my being exposed to hearing classical music performers. And when I went to junior high school, they said I had aptitude. And so I registered to study clarinet. That was an instrument that I saw that I wanted to learn about. But I was told that I couldn't be in the class. Fortunately for me, the teacher was called to the principal's office. I went into the room while the teacher was out and added my name to the roll book. And that was how I started. And it's been that kind of fight all along, along the way in development. Nothing came easily, but that didn't mean that nothing could happen. That's how I started, really. How do you pass that perseverance on to, to other musicians? Is that something that you found that you we, had to do? Yes, it is important, uh, especially now that I'm working with high school-age students. We, as professional people, whether it's conductor, doctor, police person, healthcare worker, teacher, we, as professional people, have to instill within ourselves a firm belief that we are doing what we are supposed to be doing, and through our actions, first of all, show that that is not something that is unusual, so that when children particularly black children, see us. They recognize that they can do what it is that they see. I remember not seeing anybody who had ever conducted who was black. I remember not seeing anybody who was playing in the classical music field who had been black when I was in high school or even when I was in college. And it didn't really occur to me to become a conductor until I took a conducting class as a University of Rochester student studying at Eastman. And the Eastman students always making fun of me for not being one of them. And the teacher saying after the final exam, you're making fun of this guy, but he's going to be the one who's going to be hiring you for your job. And I never forgot that. That became my motivation. Well, thank you for your work and for your interest in, you know, inspiring the next generation. I know without, you know, seeing a few folks, doing what I ended up doing, you know, I probably certainly wouldn't be here. So thanks. And thanks for your call, Leslie Dunner. Thank you very much, Terrence. It's been a pleasure. Yes, sir. Well, I'm going to take another call. This uh, call looks like uh, Liz is calling from Harlem. Hey, Liz, you on the phone? 
Hi, Terrence. Yes, I am. Hello, Liz. Tell us about tell us about your experience as a person of color, a black person in the concert hall. What has it been like for you? Any unique experiences? Uh, well, I can tell you that um, I I play the clarinet, and I remember growing up that I just thought it was a very white um, field. And I just thought that was the way it was. And I was always, you know, the only black person in the orchestra. You know, and um, I wasn't sure if I should feel uncomfortable or not. It just felt like that was the way it was until I met Janet Wolf and played for the first time in the New York City Housing Authority Orchestra. And that was an orchestra filled with black and brown, very talented musicians. And I didn't know until then how hungry I was to be with people that look like me. And is, it felt really yeah. good then. Tell, tell us more about that. What's, what's the difference, Liz? The difference is that I felt welcome. I didn't feel like I was that other person, that one person there. Um, I, it just made me feel more comfortable. I felt more natural. We laughed. We had a good time. And we were just enjoying beautiful music together. Mm-hmm. So, so what about your music making now? Where do you, where do you go to, to get that nurturing feeling and, and to be that home feeling around other musicians? Well, to be honest, I was so inspired by what Janet Wolf did with her orchestra that I started the Harlem Chamber Players, uh, which is a collective of um, run by myself, an African-American person. And we tried to recruit the best black and brown musicians in the city who are so underrepresented in classical music. And uh, it's just giving me a lot of joy to see the effect it has, especially when we work with children who need to see uh, black and brown people playing classical music. Oh, this is Liz Player of the Harlem Chamber Players. Yes, yes, you yes. know me. <laughs> nice to hear you, Liz. I certainly do. We're in Harlem. We're in Harlem. We live in Harlem, and um, I right. sometimes get to to work with the Harlem Chamber Players. And I thank yes. you for calling, Liz. We're going to take another call from Dee Dee. Keep doing what you're doing, Liz. You're making a difference up here in Harlem with all those chamber concerts and everything that you do. We appreciate you. And I know some young people are being inspired when they come to see you. And I know our, our Harlemites up here enjoy seeing that orchestra and that those players up at the Schomburg and wherever you perform. So thank you for the work you're doing. Thank you. Thank you. Good night. Dee is calling us from Staten Island, WQXR. Dee Dee. Hello. Hi. Yeah. The first thing I'd like to say, everybody always talks about Leoteng Price and Martina Arroyo. What about Denise Graves? What about Barbara Hendricks, Kathleen Battle, Jesse Norman? And what about the early ones like Matilda Dobbs? There were some uh, women around Matilda Dobbs' time because my mother graduated from Juilliard in uh, the 40s. There were quite a few of them, uh, black uh, women opera singers that came up. That They've forgotten their names, but they were very fantastic, fantastic singers. And, you, and, and nobody is even uh, talking about them, you know? Didi, are you a singer? Yes, I am a singer. I don't sing opera. I, 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 I have a, a uh, baritone voice, oh, and yeah. uh, nobody's going to train me as a baritone. <laughs> so Tell- I decided to sing uh, country music. Uh-huh. So when you were a young person, I, I can tell you've been into music for a long time. When you were a young person, who yes. who did you see or who did you hear that made you think, ah, 
I want to use my voice. I want to sing. Who was it? It was my mother. She graduated from Juilliard. Yep. Uh, Gloria Denard. Uh, she ran a, a place called Manor House Workshops, which uh, had classical and jazz workshop in East Harlem for uh, 50, I think about 50 some odd years. Uh, she just recently passed away, but she was a great influence in my life. And uh, then my grandmother, who was uh, Maud Bascom Cummings Taylor, who taught in Brooklyn in Bed-Stuy. She taught classical piano and uh, just uh, thousands of, of beautiful black uh, people came through there. And I was telling the other guy, you know, it's the strangest thing. I, I was immersed in this and like there are certain songs by Rachmaninoff and by Chopin that I actually attribute to black Americans because the way they interpreted it. I just, I just see black people when I hear that song. It's, it's amazing. <laughs> Didi, what can we do to make this experience more welcoming for our young black children? What, what can we do? I don't know. It's too late. I think it's too late. <laughs> it really is. It's just too late. Things have gone too far. I just know that there are, I know there are people in my age bracket, uh, I'm 72, that can remember the days, uh, you know, uh, and my, my mother who graduated, uh, well, went to Juilliard in, in the 40s. But there, there, there are people in my age bracket, I think, uh, middle-class black Americans who are into classical music that do not get together, do not get together, you know? We're so, so bifurcated. Everything, all of this madness, this, this, this depression uh, uh, gets into the middle class and they forget about how blessed they are. It's a shame. Well, we're going to do our best and we're going to keep fighting because the music and the people are worth, you know, fighting for. So anytime you turn on the radio and hear us on WQXR, know that we're standing for, for what's right. And we're standing for the music, uplifting the people, um, our communities, wherever they may be. Didi, we thank you for calling us and keep singing. I look forward to meeting you one day, shaking your hand too. Thank you for calling, Didi. You're tuned to WQXR and you're listening to a Juneteenth special the Black Experience in the Concert Hall from WQXR. It's a day of celebration. Four million Americans became free between 1863 and 1865. And that freedom, that exodus is celebrated every June 19th. This is WQXR. tuned to classical new york at 105.9 fm and hd we are wqxr newark and 90.3 fm wqxw Osning. you're listening to the black experience in the concert hall it's a juneteenth special from wqxr i'm terrence mcknight here with you that's don byron playing clarinet puccini's nessun dorma 
Oh, man, Don. I'm on the phone with Chelsea Daniel. She came our way a couple of years ago. She was our intern, and she and I went out to lunch one day, and she talked to me about being a student in Texas. Talked about studying piano and trying to perform music by black composers on her recital program. And that was a challenge for her. Chelsea, are you there? Hi, Terrence. I'm, I'm not here. making the I'm not making this stuff up, right? You were telling me about No, trying, you're not. Tell tell so tell our listeners, tell the folks listening what you told me. Yeah, so um my background is I started learning classical music when I was about five and I never knew that there was any such thing as a black classical pianist or black classical musician that looked like me ever. Um, so then when I went to college and I was lucky enough to have really great professors in my musicology classes who taught me um, first about Chevalier de St. George's, who was, uh, you know, a contemporary of Mozart, a black um, composer and violinist. When I, I was like, wow, I didn't know this, these people existed. So I became really curious and started learning a lot about these composers and I stumbled upon Margaret Bonds and I played her music for the first time and her music made me fall in love again with classical music in a time when I felt super disconnected from it. I was really tired of feeling left out, having people question me on like, are you part of the studio? You look different. Why are you here? Um, I felt tired of kind of approaching the music in a different way than everyone else because my background was I learned music by ear. Um, and so, yeah, so I went to my professor and asked him if I could play an all black program because I was so excited to introduce this music to my colleagues. And, um, he, yeah, he, he wasn't very happy with that request, mostly because he said it didn't fit the standard, um, and that the other professors wouldn't know how to grade me based on that music, um, and so that made me feel like that music wasn't good enough um, and that I should play what is considered standard, which is not music by black people or people who look like me. And it made me question, why am I doing this? Am I not standard enough for classical music? So that's kind of the story. I'm wondering about Chelsea, when you, um, you know, when you go back home around your family around your cousins around your friends and you're playing that standard rep you know when you're playing the Bach preludes and fugues and Mozart sonatas what's the um what kind of feedback do you get from your own community about your involvement with that music yeah I think everyone's always really impressed um it's the music that everyone knows and so they're like, oh, you can do that too. That's really amazing. But I noticed when I started playing music by Black composers, people were, this, there was this new fresh excitement that I had never experienced while I played classical music that made me more excited to learn. Um, because it's no one knows this music because um, it's not taught and it's not played. So I felt like me being a classical pianist and me um, doing what I was doing had more purpose. I was introducing this new culture, this new um, side of this music that was really impactful and moved me a lot and in turn moved a lot of the other people that I would play for. Do you freely go to concerts? I mean, like, do you just I like, go to concerts. oh, yeah, so-and-so, this pianist is coming to town or I want to hear this orchestral piece, so you just waltz into a concert hall? Is it that simple Definitely. for you? 
Yeah. And what's the feeling like? What do you feel when you get there? Does it feel, do you feel at home? Um, I don't typically, I usually feel like I have to, you know, I guess it's like the respectability politics thing, but me being a black girl in this field, I feel like I have to dress a little bit nicer than the people I'm around or speak a certain way, code switch and kind of try to blend into that environment because I want to prove that I belong, even though I shouldn't have to do that, you know, as a, I'm a human being, I shouldn't have to um, change the way I am to make other people feel comfortable. But because I've experienced, you know, racism being a student and also, you know, with my own studio, my entire studio was um, white and Asian and I was the only black student for all four years in um, college people would ask me if I was with them, you know, are you with the other people in the studio? So I always had to work extra hard to try to prove that I belonged with everyone else. Okay. Let's swap stories. I got one for you because you just reminded me of one. I was, um, I was in graduate school and I was, um, accompanying in a, in a studio, an instrumental studio. And it was early in the semester. No, it was probably October or so. So, you know, a couple months into the semester and I'm on the elevator and professor gets on and he says, how's the basketball team? I was in grad school and I was like, basketball team? I didn't even know we had a basketball team here. He said, aren't you on the team? I said, no, man, I'm, you know, our company in your studio. He said, oh. Wow. But to counter that, I had a professor, a piano teacher named Mark Boozer, who introduced me to a lot of music by black composers, William Grant Still and Florence Price and others. And then I had a professor at Georgia State, Carrie Lewis, who really talked about the ownership of emotion. He said, you know, music is colorless, man. It's all about emotion and human feeling. And it's not, you know, it doesn't belong to one particular group, one particular culture. It's beyond that. Mm. And take ownership of these Rachmaninoff preludes that you're working on because you understand what love feels like. You understand what pain feels like, just like any Russian. So take ownership of this music. Chelsea, what kind of advice have you been given? What teacher said something to you that made a difference that enabled you to, to get that degree, to keep playing, to want to keep going to concerts, to, to just be you in that space? Yeah, I mean, those are really great words. I've, I've experienced similar um, feedback. My professor, when I was in high school um, at UNCSA, University of North Carolina School of the Arts, um, he told me, he was like, Chelsea, you have something to say. Like, it doesn't matter what you're playing, like who you are and the sound that you create and what you do with the music is unique and to you and that is special and that's something that people need to hear and whenever I feel down on myself about this art form or who I am if I feel like I'm not good enough I just remember that no one else can play that Rachmaninoff play the way that I play it and that that's good enough um, even if it's not perfect that's a good word pastor I'm gonna let you go with that Chelsea and I look forward to seeing you again and, and hearing you play and um, so congratulations so on congratulations on your achievement and happy Juneteenth to you. See you next time. Happy Juneteenth. Yes. Yeah. That's Chelsea Daniel. 
She was our intern a couple of years ago. And since then, she's gone on to get her bachelor's degree. I'm Terrence McKnight, and you're listening to The Black Experience in the Concert Hall, a Juneteenth special from WQXR. There are so many people who want to weigh in on this topic of diversity in the concert hall. Panels go on all over the place about this very topic. If you look on Facebook, you'll see what I'm talking about. Now, my next guest, Greg Sandow, he's a journalist and a professor at Juilliard. He's been talking about this for a long time, way before I met him. We're going to get to talk to him later. We're going to talk to Wynton Marsalis later. We're going to talk to you later because I'm going to give you the phone number and hopefully you'll call us. But up next, we're going to hear from the man who wrote this music. His name is Alvin Singleton. He's a Brooklyn-born composer. Our phone lines are going to be open. So call with your thoughts and what you've heard tonight. This piece is called Changing Faces. Alvin Singleton joins us next right here on WQXR. Alvin Singleton, I think you're on the phone. Hello. Yes, I am. Hello, Alvin. Happy Juneteenth to you. Now, my acquaintance with Alvin Singleton goes back to my student days in Atlanta when he was the composer in residence with the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra. I was in the Morehouse Glee Club at the time and we sang one of his compositions and I still know the melody. And I guarantee you that most of those brothers who sang it with us, with me, still know that melody. I'm just going to prove it to you. Alvin had written a song that dealt with the, I think it dealt with the drought in East Africa. And I remember this melody. We are hungry. Wow. (laughs) Fallen crumbs, right, Alvin? Yes, exactly. Actually, it was about hunger. It's from um, an Indian proverb. An ant could feed a family from the fallen crumb of an elephant. That's right. That music was so important to us because you were important to us because my, our professors told us how important the work you were doing was and how significant it was. You followed T.J. Anderson as a composer in residence with that Atlanta Symphony Orchestra. T.J. was there when Robert Shaw was there, really pushing the envelope on integrating Symphony Hall in Atlanta. And then you yeah. came and, and you built on that. So Exactly, yeah. Tell us about tell us about that time, Alvin, with the Atlanta Symphony. It was a very exciting time for me. Oh, in my mind, it was experimental because I never thought that I, that would happen. I, I had been living in Austria for thirteen years, and all of a sudden, I got a telegram that Robert Shaw was interested in having me come to Atlanta to be composer in residence. And of course, I would, this was a surprise and a shock. And at that moment, I had to confess that there was a God. 
<laughs> so and I came to I came to Atlanta. I didn't I didn't know what to expect, but I it was so hot. It was in the middle of August. <laughs> I hadn't experienced anything like that before <clears throat> because Austria in the summer doesn't get that hot. Although I grew up in New York, but the environment was was uh, very interesting. Of course, the orchestra was on vacation, and I knew I knew that the popula- population of Atlanta was a large black community. But when the uh, season opened, the the people who attended concerts were mostly white, and then. There was only, I think, one person who was black who was in the orchestra. So this immediately... Yes, exactly. This bothered me because I had, had, you know, living over in Europe, I had forgotten all of that. Although I did come home every year to to visit. But this was a surprise. and, And, you know, it was just... So I never thought that I would be in, in, in that field. I just like creating things. And I grew up in a jazz neighborhood and all, all of my friends were relatives of jazz musicians. And I, I really loved jazz. I loved the idea of just making up things, just improvising, but I could never do it as well as they could or I could never do it to my own satisfaction as to whether or not I liked it. So in a sense, that's what I do anyway. I I improvise and I find uh, images in the music that I like and I write them down. How do you write, Alvin, for an audience that you know doesn't look like you. You're writing a piece of music and you know that when it's performed, that audience isn't going to be, you know, the people that perhaps that you grew up with or the families of those jazz musicians. It's going to be a, a different audience. Do you do you write for that audience or, or, or does it matter the audience you're writing for, the creative process? That no, is the it same? Doesn't, no, it doesn't matter at all. And no matter who's out there listening, you have to, you have to write for yourself. You have to write you can't put down something that you're not in tune with. So I write things that I like personally. I like it. It's it, of course I'd like it if somebody else likes it, but I'm not going to change anything for that reason. People talk about microaggressions. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Finish your thought, brother. No, go ahead. Go ahead. People talk about microaggressions. You're a composer. You know, Chelsea. My Previous guests talked about, you know, she hadn't seen any black folks doing what she wanted to do, knowing that there were black composers or or pianists. I'm wondering how about your experience. Are people surprised to know that you're a composer? I'm wondering what that what that means and and what does that mean for you? That unawareness, that that ignorance well, about black composers. Well, I think that goes a lot, you know, goes with some white composers too, because the white community doesn't understand or know much about history and and classical music, and then so that makes it even more difficult for, for black composers. And 
I, I just don't like the idea of calling myself a classical music composer anyway. And uh, it's built upon, what I do is built upon culture. Things that I grew up hearing, things that I participate. I sang in the church choir. I went to jazz concerts. I very rarely went to, went to classical music concerts. Although when I was in school, I got a job working at the New York Public Library, the, the, the large library with the two lions in front, in the music division. And I was a someone, it was only a, a reference library. People would come in and look up the, the books or the music that they wanted, and they'd ring a bell, and I'd go in their stacks and get, them, get it and bring it to them. After a while, that part of the library closed, and it went to Lincoln Center. So the library in Lincoln Center is that original library that I worked in. And then from there, I got a job working as an usher and a ticket taker at then Philharmonic Hall. And that was when Leonard Bernstein was the conductor of the New York Philharmonic. And there, I was convinced that I had to be a composer because of Bernstein did all of the Mahler symphonies. And when I heard the Mahler Second Symphony, the Resurrection Symphony, I knew I had to do this. So therefore, I've been doing it now for I don't know how many years, like 50 years. Yeah. Earlier tonight, I said that the demographic makeup of concert goers and orchestras doesn't look much different than it probably did on Emancipation Day back in 1865. What do you see what, what do you see as the obstacles? Why hasn't that changed? When you look at the NBA or you look at, you know, other sports, you know, you don't you don't see that that same kind of static um well, evolution. What, what's happening in classical yeah. music? Well, one of the things uh, is that people who attend concerts are not participants. Sometimes people grow up in families where everybody plays not to give concerts, but even just to sing at Christmas Christmas carols or to sing hymns. And and that that brings them closer to the music and wanting to hear somebody who who performs professionally at the music. And then if you ask someone to go to a concert, well, there's several reasons. Not only it's not only that it's very expensive to go to concerts. And and then, of course, not knowing the literature, and most of the literature is not literature from your own culture. So if this is the case, this, since that's the case, what's, what's keeping us from doing something different? What's what's in the way of changing the repertoire. It's not that it's not there. I mean, WQXR played a full day of music by African-American composers and performers all day. Um, mm -hmm. what, what stands in the way of, of evolving the programming? Well, the, the thing is, is that when you listen to music that's played on the radio, that music has nothing to do with the music that the average American listens to on a daily basis. So it's so culturally different. 
And I, I think that has a lot to do with bringing people to, to concerts. You know, I lived in Austria for 13 years, and you would think that the kids love Mozart. They know who he was. They studied his, their own history. But if you ask them if they had a choice to, to go to a rock concert or, or, or a Mozart concert, they'd go to the rock concert. So, so what's the that, lesson there, man? So what's the, so what's the lesson? Well, the lesson is culture. That's what the lesson is. The lesson is culture. People are not. People are going. People are going to school and they're studying the same things over and over. And classical music is just filled with European traditions. And there's no contrib. You know, when you when you go to to class, you don't learn anybody in contributions of. Of American music, yeah. and especially Black American music. I know one one of the things that I feel good about is that whenever I have a concert in New York, a lot of my audience are Black Black people, or, or specifically Black musicians. And in in investigating why that is, it says that, but. I'm told that there's something in, in, in my music that's familiar to them, which is culture, I think. It's not intentional, but it's, it's just part of you. It's part of me. Yeah. Maybe well, it's next... my intervallic construction, mm. my, my, the way I orchestrate, my timing. Your improvisatory flair. Yeah, that too. Yeah, so. well, be sure to let me know next time your music, you know, you, you do a great job. I, and thank you for letting me know when your music is being played here in New York. I always try to come out and support it because I enjoy it. I still remember the melodies from 30 years ago. So Alvin Singleton. Yeah, that's, um, a, that's, that's amazing. <laughs> so welcome back to your home, <laughs> your home station. I know you're a big supporter of New York Public Radio. I remember that from oh, yeah. back. So thanks. Nice talking to you, man. I look forward to seeing you again soon. Nice talking to you, too. And thanks for the invitation. And again, happy Juneteenth. Thank you, brother. Oh, you're listening to uh, The Black Experience in the Concert Hall, the Juneteenth special from WQXR. Now, my next guest has written a lot on what the concert hall can become. He talks about a rebirth of the art form. He's a journalist, Juilliard professor. His name is Greg Sando. Pick up the phone right now because he's going to join us in our next conversation. I want to hear from you too about anything that you've heard tonight. I've had a lot of folks talking about this idea of race and music and the concert hall and the black experience. I want to hear from you, no matter what you look like, no matter what your name is, where you come from. 646-435-7280. 646-435-7280. Looking forward to taking your call. Stay with us. Greg Sando is next.
You're listening to The Black Experience in the Concert Hall, a Juneteenth special from WQXR. Our number again is 646-435-7280. 646-435-7280. If you just want to write and send me a note, you can email me at terrence at wqxr.org. Joining us on the phone is the professor, the journalist, the critic, Greg Sando. Hey, Greg, are you there? I am there. I'm smiling. Just at the thought of talking to you. I know, man. Yeah. I've, I've I've known you since my uh, my whole time here in New York City, which twelve years now, man. Can you believe I've been here twelve years? It's and we both have young kids. That's true. How about that? How about that? Now you write a lot about the future of the concert experience. What is so disenchanting to you about the concert experience as it stands? Oh, you know what uh, Marlon Brando said in The Wild One? Watch your gut. It's complicated, you know. I don't see much of myself in it. And that has not to do with being white or black. It has to do with what my culture is. You know, I love classical music. I've been into it since I was nine. But I can tell you a story. I did tell it to you on the phone previously that one of my students at Juilliard told me. He was new to New York and uh, a member of his family who'd never been to New York comes to visit. And she's so excited by the variety of people in the streets. Just so many different kinds of people, so many lifestyles, so many ethnicities. Then they go to a concert and she walks in to the concert hall and says, where is everybody? (laughs) And so I kind of feel that way about classical music. It's pretty great. But where is everybody? Where is all the stuff I hear about? I particularly had a reaction when Little Richard died. I've been listening to him since I was 11. And he's on the front page of the New York Times for his death. Likewise, Washington Post. And I'm thinking with him and with rock and roll, came this really ecstatic wildness into music and this raucous sound. And I don't hear that in classical music. I hear a lot of great stuff that's kind of mellow on the whole. I hear Hungarian folk music and Brahms, which everybody makes a big thing about. But, you know, how about all the American music, mostly these days, black and black-derived, which kind of dominates our culture? I don't hear that. So that's a part of it, Terry. That is a part. What, what are the obstacles as you see them, Greg? What's, why aren't we programming this music? Why don't we hear this music in the, in the halls? Well, you know, wasn't it Chelsea Daniel who was, loved her, by the way, what she was talking about when she wanted to play music by black composers? She was told, well, you know, that's not really major stuff. That's not what we need you to be playing. So I think it's kind of the veneration, the worship of the classical canon. And anything different from it is kind of marginal. So as long as that is front and foremost, as long as we're dealing with like statues of great figures, very hard to get anything else in there. And when you don't have anything else, you also don't get any one Do you find that the um, industry is 
changing, it's catching up to your way of, of thinking about what, where this needs to, to go. How well, to there have been a lot of changes. I will say that. And I must say, one of the great moments for me was after many years of agitation, I saw a change happening, and it was happening without me, and it wasn't stuff I necessarily would have thought of. And that was pretty great, seeing it had some momentum. But that said, some of it I kind of like and I kind of don't. There's a whole emphasis on the community, but a lot of it is bringing our greatness to the community and not listening to the community and finding out what the community is into. I remember when Carnegie Hall and the Berlin Philharmonic taught black kids in Harlem to dance to the Rite of Spring and some classical music people were in tears. I said, and I hear that Carnegie Hall did not like this at all, where did it occur to people in Carnegie Hall to go to that community and learn how to salsa dance or produce a hip-hop record? And I don't think that kind of thing does um, occur to them. And then the things my old friend Jesse Rosen was talking about, and he is really one of my oldest friends. But the league is so determined, especially when you read their press releases about their current diversity initiatives, to really change things and to make some motion in that intractable, to use their word, number for the percentage of black musicians on stage, but they don't announce any goals. They don't say, in three years, we're going to see a dent in that. They just said, oh, we're going to hire consultants so that these orchestras can talk about their institutional culture. And I think that number should change next year. And I think there are ways in which it could if they really wanted to do it, if they made it a top priority. Certainly, if they're funders, that if you don't do that, no more money, they would do it. But I remember reading that uh, Tonin had uh, a black comedian on W. Camel Bell, and he said that TV networks should show their data. What proportion do they have of people of color at different levels of uh, their production? Release the data and vow that in a year it's going to look different and then come back in a year and show that it's different or show that you failed. I would like to see the league and other people in classical music do similar things. I know they're sincere in what they say, but uh, I show me the money, so to speak. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering I remember a term uh, that used to be, I would hear it all the time, dumbing down. And I'm thinking about you talking about this exchange that could have happened um, between Carnegie and, and these kids, you know, dancing to the Rite of Spring versus the folks learning how to salsa or merengue. Do you hear that term, Greg, used? And is there a fear of of this sort of mixing of cultures and bringing other music into the hall, that it's a dumbing down of, of a culture? Well, I haven't heard that in a while, I'm thankful to say. But I can tell you an experience that I have 
in one of my courses. It's the course I teach literally on the future of classical music. And I devote some time to pop music, and I ask the students to listen to James Brown. And then I ask them to tell me what's going on in the James Brown song. I usually pick Sex Machine that they're listening to, and they can't describe it. They just can't. And if they do, they'll say, well, it's kind of the same thing over and over again. And so then I say, well, listen, I think it's kind of based on rhythm, and I'm going to play it again and focus on the bass player and then listen from the bass player up and hear how everybody else is fitting with what he's doing. And then suddenly the whole thing explodes for them. And they hear this, this universe and constant change with fascinating stuff going on, but it's not stuff they're used to listening to. So I think that a lot of people in classical music will say with the best will in the world, oh, this stuff is really nice, but there's not much going on of it. And from a classical music point of view, there may not be. You know, you can't analyze the harmony and form and find endless subtleties, though you probably find more than people expect. But other things are going on, and people don't really know how to listen to that. Yeah. But then I must say, that tends to go for contemporary classical music as well. Greg, I want you to I want you to keep that thought and stay on the phone with us because yeah. we've got a caller calling from sure. Nashville. Um, okay. And he is the principal oboist in the Nashville Symphony Orchestra. Titus, are you there? I am here. How are you doing, Terrence? Good. How are you? Nice to hear your voice. I'm doing great. Great to hear you as well. I'm on the phone here with um, Greg Sando, as you know. And I want you to just talk about how long have you, how long have you been in Nashville? This is a, a huge job, man. If, uh, you're probably the first person of color to have that principal job in that orchestra. What's it been like? Tell us your experience in the concert hall. Okay, well, first I want to say uh, I'm the first black uh, principal, male or female, within any major symphony orchestra to be principal in 10 years because there's, um, our friend Shea Scruggs, who was there before me, who had won principal jobs. But the main thing I wanted to, to, to address was uh, the struggle story is rare within our field, but it's commonly the path of black players to the point that that question that what is our experience implies that there is a struggle that's there. But we are in a field where most people who are there or a lot of good number of people who are there are, come from privileged communities where there's Latin instruments that are expensive and all these things. And the things that I would like to see as far as the concert hall is not just the experience, but how can that change, right? So we have, I always tell people that musicians pick musicians within the orchestra. Then musicians create unions. And then unions negotiate contracts. I'm saying as far as going forward, uh, especially on Juneteenth, that we're reevaluating the consciousness of our field, is that we make sure that when we're renegotiating these contracts that we make an incentive for corrective action to be there because this is something that's just due now that the conscience has moved forward for us to make those actions, um, to bring about corrective action in the orchestra. So I would say to orchestras, should that when you negotiate that black players, that you even say, hey, we will hire five black players in the next two years within our orchestra, tenure and protected. We will have black administrators, board members, staff, and all those things. And the thing that makes it confusing for people is that they don't think that they have to define why we're culturally relevant. And we have to define that it's culturally relevant because people pay to have this cultural affirmation. The halls are there. They pay me money to culturally affirm classical music, but we, we both know from the music that you're playing that 
black people been here for a long time writing classical music for over a century or more now. So I have to say that orchestras have to think about what what is valuable and does do these people bring value to these institutions and there shouldn't be a financial incentive on the end to hire black players. It should just be done and that philanthropy should be reorganized towards, you know, organizations like you just spoke to this player of Harlem Chamber players or you know, an IMI or gateways, right, where people have already been fostering this cultural uh, blackness that's been there for many years. They should be elevated within this field and also orchestras should make room for that power to be shared and for us to be there and have the same right that every other musician has there. Now, so that was the main, yeah, go ahead. Mm-hmm. I want you to talk about, because it sounds like what you're talking about is something that Jesse kind of leaned into. And he talked about his research with these black musicians being um, unsupported in these orchestras when they're the only one. Now, I know you show up at the Gateways Music Festival every other year. Um, That festival happens and and it's a a festival of all of these black players from around the country um, and Mm -hmm. from without from outside of the country too, come together for a, a week or so and play music. Tell, tell us about that experience, man, and playing with that orchestra versus all of the other orchestral kind of work that you do when you're perhaps and probably the only one. Absolutely. I mean, at Gateways, man, it's like going to see, it's like a family reunion, you know. It's, someone asked me recently, how does it feel? What is the biggest thing that you feel being in the concert hall? I said, belonging. And I hear a lot of people talking about culture and classical music has been a part of our culture for a long time. We are the underpinning of classical music, whether it's rhythms or, or, or harmonic structures that are put within there because it didn't happen within the European vacuum. And I think the thing that we, the thing that I see at gate at a place, place like gateways is that I'm surrounded around black people who play classical music. And not only do we realize that we've been a part of this, but we take pride in that we're part of this canon as well. It's just that our canon isn't as promoted or supported as other places. And when I, when if you speak about, you know, being in a predominantly white space, I think many classical musicians, that's their pinnacle. And, and it is hard to see the pinnacle as having us be there as a majority that's there. And I say, I don't take pride in being the first and I don't take pride in being the only, but I say, bring the team because the team affects cultural change. So all these questions that we have within these institutions will be, these questions won't be there because you have a strong enough critical mass there to already be there to know what to do instead of asking the one black person that's there what to do during these times. You will have those who were hired, having the same capital, having the same benefits tenured and protected. And that's why I say it's time to have conversations about contracts and not just conversations, but action. Now, what do you make of this, Greg? What do you make of this, uh, of Titus talking about using the power of the union uh, to renegotiate, to, to change the contracts, to set goals? Of I a- have to tell you, I love it, love it, love it. That is the kind of thing that really makes a difference. You can't talk anymore. You have to do it. And that is a really great way to have the leverage. I'm reminded of a story from a long time ago that I heard from a black cellist who at the time, this would be the 1990s, played with the Cincinnati Symphony. It's about something that happened in 1968. Aretha Franklin was playing a gig at a big venue in New Jersey, and she wanted strings, 
as you specified, that the string players had to be black. So where are you going to find black string players in 1968? Nobody do. But yet they found them, and they didn't know each other. And it was a revelation for them to look around and see that there was more of them. But it was Aretha saying, you have to do it, that made it happen. Not, I'd like you to do it, but I'm going to have that in my contract. You have to. So, you know, bravo, if you can make that happen, uh, my heart is pretty thrilled. Yeah. Well, Titus, thank you for calling us, man, and and we wish you continued success. Yep, man. Look forward to talking to you again soon. We've got a caller from the wow. east, Upper East Side. Yeah, how about that? Caller from the east, Upper East Side. Nicole, are you there? Yes, I'm here. Now I understand that you're not a musician, but you're just a music lover and you're a listener to WQXR. Is that the case? Absolutely. Okay, what do you want to say to us? Well, as I was just saying to the, to the guy I was speaking to originally who took the call, um, you know, I'm an avid classical music listener and follower and I've been listening to QXR for a number of years now, and I'm super appreciative of what you do. And his question was, you know, how can we bring, you know, classical music um, to to various communities where it's it's not typically listened to? And um, I said to him, I think a really easy statement would be to just be bold, you know, um, step out from the normal sort of, well, I shouldn't say normal, but the typical stereotypes that many different groups are in as, in terms of what music you should be listening to or shouldn't be listening to. Um, and I think in schools, primarily, you know, we're taught that classical music is something listened to by, like, men, white men wearing wigs. You know, like, violins are associated with, like, people who just are so, so polar opposite from yourself. And that's so far from the truth. And I love that QXR brings that um, culture and music um, and, and, and knowledge to another level if only people could just listen to it more often and, and I kind of feel like no matter where you live right, it's 145 in Edgecombe or Chancellor Avenue in Newark if you love this music then go for it be bold and um, listen don't let anyone stop you from a passion that you may like I mean I think a lot more crossover in music now than like when I was growing up in the 80s but when I grew up, I think classical music was never crossed over, even now. You know, it's just something that people don't think you should listen to. I know I listen to it at work occasionally, and people sometimes think, wow, how did she get into classical music? It's like, because I love it. <laughs> it's pretty simple to me, you know. Um, and I think I, I, I would love to see that happen for young black people. And when I heard Miss Chelsea Daniels, that's what really prompted my call, because I just love hearing that she's obviously been bold and followed her passion, and she had, you know, the ability to play the music and to to really be involved in the music. But if you're just a listener, you can do the same thing. You know, I'm I've been blessed to have grown up in a multicultural environment, and you know, uh, even if not, you should still go for it. You know, I mean, my uncle grew up listening to Peter Frampton, Cream, and you know, I was always around music, so for me, it was a little bit easier. Um, but I still think you should go for it, and I, I wish that schools could really bring that to sort of a, a comfortable center so that people who are not from certain socioeconomic backgrounds or races can just embrace this music, because I think it really brings a, a depth of culture and um, positivity to anyone's life, and I, I wanted to say that. 
Well, we certainly appreciate your call. My goodness. Yes. The call from the Upper East Side. Keep listening to WQXR. And when we do something that you, you enjoy, let us know. And when we can do better, you I let will. us know. You can always email me. Always. I'm you at Terrence at WQXR.org. You guys are great. I appreciate everything. Okay. How about that, Greg Sando? Well, you know, I, I say that to my students, really. If you want people to listen to your music who aren't listening to it, go out and be yourself with it. Yeah. And tell people you love it and tell them why you love it. But don't say, oh, classical music is great. Classical music is special with the implication that they have to like it or else somehow they're not cultured or that they need to learn a great deal about it. And then I think it has to be played with a lot of enthusiasm. I've heard in my years in the business too many routinely great, routinely good performances and not enough that jump off the stage. Yeah. Well, thanks for all the work you do, Greg, and, uh, you know, and moving the conversation forward and, and keeping the hope alive. And in terms of, you know, the concert experience being more about our culture and our young people. Uh, being do you able think to... I could tell one quick story? One story, man. You got it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Margaret Bonds, there's a composer whose date has come up here. She wrote an orchestral piece about the Montgomery bus boycott. And she wrote it at the time the bus boycott was happening. So it was not performed then. And in fact, it has never been performed. Although with the revival of her music, there is now a performing edition of it. And it was supposed to be premiered on April 25th in Georgetown University. Of course, it was not. But they will do it as soon as they can. But imagine if that piece had been performed in the 60s, just at the time of the bus boycott and Martin Luther King and the Civil Rights Movement. And imagine if there had been other pieces by black composers, and some of them maybe by composers who weren't black, but on black themes and with black relevance. Can you imagine where classical music would be today? Yeah, it's a great story. We'll have to hope that that piece gets performed. Margaret Bonds, I mean, she was so important, you know, to, to Langston and to MLK and all that work of the time that we're seeing yep. sort of a resurgence of that kind of consciousness in our culture. And I'm looking oh, forward yeah. to hearing what, what folks will write coming out of this experience. Greg Sando, thanks for joining us here on WQXR on this Juneteenth You're so special. welcome. All right. Thank you. We're celebrating Juneteenth here on WQXR and you know, it's not over. We're going to be, I'm going to be here with you till midnight and this program is not going to be over until Winton gets here. You know, when I was at Morehouse, my professor, Wendell Whalum, walked in class one day. I was taking a survey of African-American music. He came in class one day with a magazine with an article about this trumpet player from New Orleans. So we read it as a classroom assignment. I said, who talks like this? Who is this dude? Whalum said, if you keep working hard, you can have a strong opinion, too. That dude was Wynton Marsalis, and he's going to join us next. Jubilo. Can you smell it? The scent of democracy. That's music by my guest, Wynton Marsalis. Wynton, hey, man. What's happening, man? 
<laughs> nice to hear your voice. Nice to hear your music always, man. It's good to talk to you, man. Yes, sir. Now, we've been talking for the last two hours just about about the black experience in the concert hall for the last 20, 23 hours here on WQXR. We've been playing music by black performers and black composers. You've been featured throughout the day. You know, I just talked about that article from, you know, way back that really influenced me and made me think that I could survive here in New York. And um, so I owe a lot to to you being bold and and you being standing up for the people, man, and standing up for the music. So thank you for that. And thanks for taking our call, man. Yeah. Now, now, thank you so much, man. Now, yeah, absolutely. Now, the last time I heard a piece of your music was, I think it was a blues symphony. It was at uh, Lincoln Center a couple of years ago. And I remember you played played that symphony and then you guys came out and played an encore. And I was so moved because nobody wanted to leave after the encore. People were just standing around talking and laughing and enjoying themselves. And and I looked over at the person seated, seated next to me and I said, you see, check this out, man. Look, people usually like rush out of out of the hall, but now they're just standing around. And he said, what's going on? How did this happen? I said, because they know the tunes, man. They know the music and it feels like us. It feels American. Is that something, Wenton, that you try to do? Is that conscious on your part? Yeah, I definitely do it uh, consciously. I definitely try to get the aspects of our music and try to put it in there. And, you know, but I also have so much respect for orchestral music and the instruments and the skill required to write for the orchestra and give people stuff that's challenging to play. So, you know, I weigh a lot of things into, I worked on it for, I've worked on it for many years, uh, trying to address all the different difficulties of putting our music together. Yeah. I guess because you've been wearing a few hats in terms of playing so many styles for such a long time. Do you remember like your first, I think, you know, maybe New Orleans is a special case, but do you remember like, going to concert halls as a young person? Oh, man. You know, we... <laughs> well, I'm from I'm from country towns, man, like Appaloosa's, Brobridge, uh, <laughs> Kenner. It was really country. Okay? So it's like segregated Louisiana. And I mean, we, we were basically in the hood. And um, I was... I, I was I had a good time, man. I, you know, I was... I, I always could play ball. And, and, and I, I did all that. I never really went to any classical music, but my mama one time, my father wasn't on me. He was on the road. Got four of us. This is when the first four boys, my other two little brothers, had not been born yet. And we got our clothes on, man. We had all our stuff. We would get out the Sears catalog. And we drove to New Orleans. We had a Volkswagen van. I'll never forget it. And we went to the concert hall to see the New Orleans Philharmonic play. I don't remember what they played. I might have been like 10 years old. But we never really were around white people because we grew up in Kenner and strictly segregated. Uh, we started going to white school after Martin Luther King got killed, but we never were in a white social environment. And that was just a case you went to school and you came home. Man, we we looked like we was from another planet when we walked <laughs> up in there. You know, just, <laughs> I don't want to laugh. We were so country. And my mama from the, from the St. Bernard Projects, man, she didn't really like classical music. It, it, and she was like, she just knew it was something she needed to take her kids to. And man, we sat up in there and everybody was looking at us like, how did y'all get in here? What nobody was mean to us though. We were so out of place. Everybody was cool. And we noticed it was a black dude in the orchestra. Richard Harrison was, was his name. So me and my brother was joking about classical music. We had never listened to it. You know, we listened to what's on the radio, James Brown, uh Marvin Gaye Motown. 
and, and my brother said, man, I see the black dude in the audience. And we said, yeah, man. He said, man, but he's playing flute. So we thought, damn, flute. You know, at that time, we was like not on the flute. And uh, we we went home. We, we heard the piece, and we went home, and we we were like, man, that is some of the most boring stuff we ever heard in our life. We will never go hear this again. So that's the one concert experience we had when I was a kid, like before preteen. But then when I was 12, all the, everybody would sit in the black people sat in the back of the streetcar and uh, the white people almost never came in the back. And I had my trumpet case and a guy got on the streetcar at, at Loyola University and walked in the back and put his trumpet case right next to mine. So I was kind of trying to play him off a little bit because I didn't want to have no problems. <laughs> you know? And I thought, man, this dude is bold to come back here like that. And he put his case right down next to mine and he asked me, are you a trumpet player? So first, my first inclination was to be jive. But I was like 12, or 13, 12, maybe almost 13. He was like 19 or 20, college age. And so I said, yeah, man, yeah, I'm, I'm a trumpet player. He said, hey, man, I'm going to give you this album. I want you to listen to it. So then I had to, you know, I had to smile, man. I couldn't be jive. I said, I'm going to stop worrying about these brothers. I'm gonna, I got to address my man. So I addressed him and I told him, thank you. He gave me a record. And I saw it was a classical record and my heart kind of sank like, damn, classical music. But I looked at the record. It was of a French trumpet player named Maurice Andre. And I turned the record over and I read the liner notes. And liner notes said he, his parents was coal miners. And I said, man, a dude's parents mine coal? And he played classical music on a trumpet? Damn, I can't wait to go home and hear him. And I went home. I adapt my man. I can't remember his name. I, you know, I didn't never develop a relationship with the guy who did that for me. But I did adapt him and show him the proper respect. And I went home and I put that recording on. Man, Maurice Andre blew my mind. I started wondering, I wonder if I can play like this guy plays. So then I learned everything off of records. I didn't have music. But the first piece I heard was the Haydn trumpet concerto. And then, you know, next year I entered a concerto competition to play with the New Orleans Philharmonic and won. That's, that's an incredible story, man. Yeah, man. And then later I met Maurice Andre. When I recorded my first classical album, I was supposed to be doing it in Czechoslovakia. But I left Czechoslovakia because we were using blocked funds in the Eastern country. And I thought that the Czechoslovakians didn't want to play for me because I was black. So we left there on one day after playing one day with not good rehearsals. And then we went to London and, and I did my first recording of classical music, which was three concertos I heard Maurice Andre play. And in the studio, Abbey Road Studio at that same time was Maurice Andre. Now you think I'm lying. This stuff is 100% <laughs> true. And he gave me a lesson on playing the pieces, and I'll never forget, he told me, make sure you play your trills in time and come out of them on time. And uh, it's, just, it's just ironic symmetry. And just to close that story out, 30-something years later, I was 21 years old when I did that record. Now, this is maybe five years ago, so I'm 53 or 54. I'm sitting at a table, and we're playing in, Czech, in, in, a, in Czechoslovakia, and a, a guy from the symphony had brought us to the concert hall. And he said, he said you know, you came to Czechoslovakia to play with us, when you were a kid and you left after one day. I said, yeah, man, I thought y'all didn't want to play for me because I was a brother. He said, no, man, we were Eastern European. That broke our hearts. We thought, man, we don't play good enough for Winton to play with us. And me and him, we, we, we had a few drinks and we started laughing. I told him, man, all these years, I thought it was like a racial thing. He said, no, man, we were playing the best we could play. So all, everything I told you, 100% true. You can't write this kind of stuff. <laughs> man, it sounds like, you know, Music for you has been a way of of like bridging like racial uh, like cultures and and races and, and music is like the underbelly of all of this stuff connecting all of these people and these experiences together. That's what 
that's what I'm hearing. And that's what I think most of us kind yeah, of see from your career, man, and all the different styles yeah. that you're playing and the people that you touch. That's why I wanted to have you on yeah. the show to kind of close this out, you know, on, on that sort of optimism yeah, and uh, hope for the music. And your brother told me something a few years ago, man. He said, uh, it's got to be about the people, man. Music's got to be about the people. When it's no longer about the people, it loses its relevance. And that's something I hang on that's to. That's right. I, I see that with you, man. And I just want to thank you again for all your work and for being here. The next time yeah, we do this, you. we're going to have to get you on sooner and longer, Wenton. Thank you, brother. Man, any, anytime. Call you, me. You know, hey, great you what y'all doing. Thank you for everything you're doing. This, uh, this is WQXR. Wenton, we'll talk to you next time, brother. Thanks for being here. <laughs>